0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, we've got a lot of work to do. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're back in this beautiful chapter. Honestly, I'm after last week, I was wondering if you'd be back, but it looks like most of you made it back, so uh, part two. It's on page 674, I think, or 676 of your Pew Bible if you're using one of those, and this would, again, as always, be uh, a, a real important message to kind of follow along with us. All right, here's what we're going to do. Last week, we looked at biblical manhood and womanhood and the glory of God from a sort of 30,000-foot level, and this week, we're, we're going to parachute in and look a little bit more uh, nitty-gritty on the ground level and... and and see what those things should look like on the ground. And so uh, uh, we're going to read the scripture again, and uh, then I'm going to make just a couple points, and then we're going uh, to, uh, by review, and then we're going to go back, and then we're going to look at just three questions that I want us to consider uh, together. But before I read the scripture and pray for understanding, I just want to echo a point that Don McKelvey. Uh, made at the end of the service last week. In fact, Don and Terry are away on their 30th anniversary, I think, uh, celebrating marriage, so they're not with us today. But at the end of the service last week, Don made a really a beautiful and appropriate point where he ended on this note of grace as we talked about manhood and womanhood and the glory of God. And he, he said that, he says, I imagine that your reactions are probably all over the map. Some of you may be bristling at these truths and others are maybe feeling beat up about these truths. And there's this beautiful sort of grace filled restoration that the gospel brings, and so um I want you to know that that uh these things i i I meant to mention it last week, but these things that we're working through together as a body there there's a certain amount of authority that I think you need to have when you're preaching from the scriptures but uh but then people translate that sometimes as if you have this all worked out in your life. Friends, I don't. I mean, I was freshly convicted these past couple of weeks as I was thinking through these issues about how, how really desperately I fall short in these areas in my own life. And, and so let's just, as we work through these issues as a church for the second week, let's just let the gospel permeate all of life. Let, let's let the truth that we believe about what Jesus did on the cross not just be this sort of distant knowledge that saves us, but that also sanctifies us. Remember, we make this analogy that the gospel is like the hub of a wheel and everything flows off of it. All of life, finances, sexuality, relationships, vocation, thought life, everything is like a spoke that flows from the work that Christ has done on the cross. And nothing flows more prominently from the gospel than the relationship between a man and a woman a husband and a wife. So with that, let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 through 16 again. Here's my plan, is to go through and tidy up a couple unanswered questions from last week, a little bit more technical about what this looks like in the church. And then the second part, we're going to look a little bit more fully at what manhood and womanhood biblically looks like in the home. So let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 through 16 again, like we did last week. Paul writing, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. (laughs) Well, even as I read it again today, and I've been reading it all the last couple weeks, it's still kind of, wow, thank you, Paul, for dropping that piece of knowledge on us. What? are you talking about? Well, let's pray and uh, ask the Lord for help. Lord, again, we come to you uh, with humility. Lord, we confess that we drink from the fountain of broken culture much more than we drink from the fountain of biblical truth. We confess that our default positions on these issues have been much more informed by the sarcasm and the cynicism and the degradation of our culture and MTV and The Simpsons and broken things like that, then they have been informed by biblical truth. So we need help. We need help. We need, we need humility. Lord, we reject passivity. Passivity and cynicism. And we come to you trusting that what you say is good for us. So help us now. Help us now to think on these things. Help me to speak on these things. And Lord, I pray that Christians in this room would be filled with affection for Jesus and his ways. And I pray that people that are not in this room, that are in this room, that are not yet Christians, Lord, that even as we speak about this issue that flows from the gospel, that their hearts would be drawn to the gospel and that they would see what Jesus has done for them because what hangs in the balance for that person is eternity today, Lord. I pray that you would cause scales to fall from their eyes and they would turn and trust in Jesus and be made alive by the power of your gospel. I pray these things for your glory and the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, just a little background to remember to refresh our memory of what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 11. What is this issue of head coverings? Basically, Paul is saying that women should wear a head covering and that it, should, it is a sign of respect. It's a sign that she is under the authority of her husband. And what's going on in the Roman Empire and in the Greek context of the Corinthian culture during this time is, is there's a sort of sexual liberation movement afoot. Now, it all starts, really, with the sin of men. Men are desperately wicked, and sexual immorality is rampant in the church. We've read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And men, which is often the case in, in that culture and in our culture, are uh, sinning dreadfully and uh, doing whatever they want sexually. And uh, as a reaction to that, what is happening in the culture of Corinth during this time is there were some women in the culture, not necessarily in the church, but in the culture that are reacting to the sin of the men and their husbands. And they're saying, well, if, if men can do this, if men can just flaunt their sexuality and do whatever they want with their bodies, then, then maybe we can too. And for women, this would work its way out by, by taking off this head covering. It would be sort of akin to us today if a woman would sort of take off her wedding ring That would be a good parallel between this cultural sign of the head covering for the Corinthians and what we would recognize as a sort of sign that she is with a man, that a woman would take off that head covering to sort of signal to the culture or to the men that she is available. And Paul is worried that this sort of inappropriate liberation is taking root in the Corinthian church and is hearing maybe some potential reports from his ministry associates and from the letter that's been written to him that he's responding to that maybe this is going on and so his overarching point to the corinthians is that there should be this beautiful sort of safe protective joy-filled order that happens in a biblical culture between men and women whereby women are not subjugated or denigrated but they are actually protected and then it becomes a place from which they their womanhood flourishes, and so he's encouraging them to to not take off their head coverings because it was a cultural sign of of sort of licentiousness or or inappropriate sexual uh, flaunting. And so that's the background of what's going on in these verses. That's why Paul is saying that a woman should have this head covering. Now let's look back quickly about the principles that we made 30,000 feet last week, and I'll just read them. When I was a little kid growing up in church, I'd always get real frustrated at the preacher who would summarize last week's sermon. I have become that guy. So let's go. Let me just run through them real quickly. From last week, just a 30,000-foot view, the Trinity models for us. Don't worry about taking notes. We'll have all these on the Internet, on, on the resource page by tomorrow afternoon. The Trinity models for us how men and women should relate. So just as Jesus is functionally subordinate to the Father that's how functionally a wife should be subordinate to her husband. There's no intrinsic difference in worth between a wife and her husband, just as there's no intrinsic difference in glory or value and dignity between Jesus and the Father. But Jesus functionally subordinates himself to the will of the Father in this beautiful Trinitarian submission, and that becomes a model. In fact, Paul refers to that. Just as Jesus submits himself to the Father, so a wife should to her husband. So the Trinity is a model for us. Men and women are equal but have complementary roles we talked about last week. Male and female roles are rooted in creation and not the fall. People that are oftentimes within the Christian church that are opponents of this view of the complementary view of men and women often argue that these are just cultural adaptations because of the fall of mankind and it really wasn't intended by God to be like this but this is just kind of the way it is but Paul in his letter to the Corinthians that we read roots it back in creation. And we'll read in Timothy. He says that actually Adam was made first. And so he he roots this order not in the fact that we have to give in to broken culture, but he roots it before the fall of Adam and Eve, pointing back to Adam being created first as the reason why men have this headship role. Thirdly, male and that's thirdly, fourthly, men and women need each other. Uh, we are interdependent, not codependent. Or independent of each other. And number five, men should be masculine, and women should be feminine. He tells the men not to wear a head covering because they, uh, if they were to wear a head covering, would be dressing like a woman. And I don't think I need to get started again about the femininity of our culture with men and how we're trying to make boys into girls. Um, several of you emailed me and said that you saw the latest J. Crew catalog or whatever, or the stupid vampire movie, and. The boys look like milky white little girls with long hair, no hair on their bodies. They're skinny. They look like they need to spend a couple weeks in the weight room, eat a steak, and go get a tan in, by mowing the yard, not in the tanning bed. <laughs> but don't get me started on that. I will get sidetracked and we'll be here till 2 and your mom will be mad because you're late for lunch. Men should be masculine and women should be feminine. Six, marriage is the only setting for the expression of our sexuality. The issue with these head coverings when the women would take them off is they were sort of making themselves available sort of culturally. And we're broken at this in our culture. We are broken. We define, women find their worth, worth sometimes in our culture solely by whether or not their curves or their beauty externally can attract a man. And we create attractiveness solely through physical terms. And so even women in the church sometimes unintentionally dress inappropriately because it's just such the fountain that we drink from but the the only expression for our sexuality is the setting of marriage and then finally seven how we understand these roles either confuses or clarifies the gospel okay so what's going on here is there's an onlooking world seeing how the church comports itself and what's at issue here is not men being in charge and women submitting friends that's not it What's at issue here is how we as people together in a church or as men and women together in a Christian household live together and how we reflect and point people to Christ by how we graciously interact with one another. So what is at issue here is the clarity of what Jesus has done on the cross, not just male and female roles. Okay, that's an overview from last week. Now, three questions. We're going to land this plane and get on the ground. And by the way, there's no way I could touch on all the issues that may come up through these two talks in 1 Corinthians. So if you have any questions, email me, call. I will be more than willing to work through anything that uh, may not be uh, addressed, that a question that you may have. Three questions. I'll throw them up there on the screen real quick, and then we'll work back through uh, and answer them. Number one, can women speak in church or not? <laughs> well, I'll answer that for you in just a second, but there seems to be a contradiction in Paul's, writings even within 1st Corinthians there seems to be a contradiction in 1st Corinthians 11 he says that it seems to hint that they can pray or prophesy just not without a head covering but then in chapter 14 he says they should remain silent in the church so what's the issue there can women speak in church or not number one number two why in places like Crosspoint this isn't the whole church wide but why in churches like Crosspoint are only men elders and pastors and then three what does this complementary view of men and women look like in the home between a husband and a wife? All right. Number one, uh, can men, can women speak in church or not? Well, let's go back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse five, verse 5, But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So what he's saying here is he's, he's saying that if a woman prays or prophesies in this sort of unsubmitted way without a head covering, then that's out of order. So I think clearly we can deduce from that that he's not saying that women cannot pray or prophesy, and we'll break that down here in just a second. He's just saying that there is an improper way for women to pray or prophesy in the church gathering. Remember what's going on here in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 is Paul is addressing the church specifically on how they should conduct themselves when they gather together. So the context here is the church gathered together, men and women together in the same room. And so from chapter 11, he seems to hint, and not hint, he seems to clearly state that there is an appropriate place for women to pray or prophesy it just needs to be done in a proper way. But then if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, don't worry about flipping there. We'll have it on the screen. He seems, he seems to say something different. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. He says, what then, brothers, when you come together, again, the church gathered, mixed gendered, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone's speaking a tongue, Let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. By the way, there's a lot in that. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. When we get to chapter 14, we're not skipping past that. That's going to be beautiful, unpacking that. We're going to chop it up. We're going to get a sharp knife and chop that up. It's going to be awesome, but we'll save that for another day. But what's going on here is the church is gathered, and spiritual gifts are being exercised. And then he says, as in all the churches of all the saints, the women, verse 34, should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And so, in chapter eleven, I want you to see this now. This is a good lesson on how to read the Bible in context. This is this is very important here. Just a kind of a hermeneutical principle, a way to hermeneutics means a way to approach the Scriptures. It's a discipline by which we look at the Bible and receive truth. And so in chapter 11, he says that women can pray and prophesy by default, just not without a head covering or under the submission of their husband. But in verse 14, he says they should be silent. So what's going on there? Did Paul forget what he wrote in chapter 11, or is he contradicting himself? No, we know that the Bible is inspired by God and that it's true and profitable. So what's going on there? What I think is going on there is that in chapter 14, Paul is not saying that women have no opportunity to speak in church. But what he's saying is that there is a particular kind of speech, an authoritative speech, that women should not participate in in the gathered church. And what's at view here in 1 Corinthians 14 is people are offering prophecies, they're offering a tongue, spiritual gifts are coming, some revelation is coming. And it seems that women can do that from chapter 11. But then there's another type of speech that is present there in chapter 14. If you look at verse 29 where it says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. It is the responsibility of the elders of the church to weigh the words that are being brought forth to sort of give authority to the things that are spontaneously maybe rising up in the church for the sake of the blessing of the people. And so what I think Paul, and this is what virtually every Uh, commentator that I read on this issue is saying here is that the type of speech that he is saying women should not participate in in chapter 14 is the sort of authoritative judging speech that really is reserved for men and in particular the elders pastors shepherds of the church and so there really isn't a contradiction when you look closer at it he's actually saying women should be praying and prophesying and be blessing the church with their speech But there is a particular type of authoritative, elder-like, shepherding, pastor, leadership speech that really a woman should not participate in the church. And so then let's go to, it brings up a whole other question, of what is prophecy exactly? Well, that's a word that's tremendously understood thanks to channels like TBN. But don't get me started on that. Um, That was kind of a joke, but sort of serious. Watch it with much care. There's a lot of dangerous stuff that's purported on goofy Christian television. Some of it is okay. Most of it's junk. When we say prophecy, we're not talking about, uh, like, foretelling the future. And in the New Testament, the word prophecy certainly doesn't have the authority that an Old Testament prophet had, like, like Isaiah or Jeremiah. That was an office. That was a designation. That was a role that God gave a particular man. But then in the New Testament lowercase p, there's this gift of prophecy. And we tend to, because I think of some of the abuses of modern uh, uh, American evangelicalism, we, we get all goofy with this. And we think it's some sort of strange, mystical experience that when somebody prophesies, there should sort of be a smoke machine where things kind of come. And there should be somebody playing some really, really, you know, uh, in, music in the background that just makes us all kind of get goosebumps and go, ooh. But literally that word in the Greek that is used in the New Testament for prophecy literally means an inspired utterance. It is a sort of spontaneous revelation that God brings to a person's mind to be a sort of piece of Christ-revealing piece of God-truth to be brought to bear on the church in that moment. And that really is a very simple thing. Our conversations should be full of prophetic speech. Hopefully my sermon should be full of prophetic-like speech. When Christians gather together in small groups, the gift of prophecy, which is actually very practical and blue-collar, and every day should be present in the speaking of Christians one to another. It's not this strange, mystical fortune-telling. It's this practical, Bible-saturated, yielded heart that God stirs up some piece of truth whereby one Christian can speak it to another and in the context of a group setting or a gathered worship service where a particular Christian has a sort of spontaneous revelation, again, not mysterious, just a sense, a word, an exhortation, an encouragement that stirs the hearts of the church towards faith and better understanding of Jesus. Friends, this should be part of Every gathering of Christians. Prophetic speech. It's not some strange mystical thing. And Paul is saying that women should pray and they can prophesy in that very practical, everyday way in the church. But this prophetic type of speech is subordinate to Scripture. And so prophetic speech does not carry with it the weight of the teaching of the Scriptures, which is the responsibility of the elders and male pastors, which we'll look at in just a second. And so the the church should be full of this sort of exhortation and bringing to bear spontaneous thoughts about God's truth for the building up of the body. And Paul actually encourages this type of speech for all the people in the church. And then this prophecy then needs to be judged and weighed by the male leaders of church. church so what type of speaking is appropriate for a woman in church well certainly praying uh, this type of prophetic speech what would the context be for us in that because really the prophetic speech and we'll get to this about order and worship and why maybe american church culture has developed a little bit differently than what we're looking at here in corinth when we get to chapters 12 and 14 specifically about orderly worship but in our worship context, with five to 600 people in a room, there's really not the context for people to just shout out prophetic words. And so what would that look like? Would a woman have an opportunity to do that here on a Sunday morning? Well, probably not, but really, mostly neither would men, for, by and large. And so what we're looking at there, probably in our context, and again, we'll break this down more fully when we get to it, prophetic speech in a gathered mixed-gender group in American church culture today might look like a small group where a woman shares a particularly edifying word or spontaneous revelation, and it would be very appropriate for her to share that in the context of a mixed-gendered gathering of men and women of the church. A woman can lead in a song. She can read scripture. And certainly women can teach uh, other women and young children. And so can women speak in the church or not? Yes, women can certainly speak in the church but it needs to be a certain type of speech. It's not the preaching, teaching, authoritative speech that is reserved for the male leadership of the church. Secondly, then, it leads to another question, which is our second question. Why are only men elders and pastors of churches? Maybe you grew up in a in a kind of a, a pretty uh, conservative Southern Baptist church, and that's just kind of the way it is, and you never question that. And here you are, this is not an issue for you, it's just the way it is. I mean, the sky is blue, uh, you know, SEC's got the best football, and women can't be pastors. I mean, those are just, that's the, kind of the, 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 so what? Well, friends, we don't want to ever fall into this sort of reliance of, well, that's just the way it is. Anything that is, is, is because God has said it. And so as a church, we, we don't believe that only men can be pastors and elders because we're conservatives or because we're in the South or because we're Southern Baptists, which we're not, but we love them. I mean, we love Southern Baptists. I mean, I'm more Southern Baptist than some of you that actually are Southern Baptists. But that's another issue. But but we're not just this way because we're in the South and by golly, you know, we drink Coke and drive trucks and tuck in our shirts. We we think this because it's biblical. And why is it? Where is it biblical? Well, I'll read it to you. Let's go. First Timothy chapter two. First Timothy chapter two, starting in verse eight. Paul writes this as an instruction to the church at Ephesus. It's, the book is named Timothy because Timothy is the young pastor of the city of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. And he writes to them, and he says, I desire then that at every place the men should pray. Again, he's, the context here is gathered worship, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. We're going to talk about that more in just a second. So if your hair is braided or if you are wearing gold in here, you do not need to sweat for the next 10 minutes until we get to that. I want to release you from that sort of cultural um, angst right now. We're going to talk about that in a second. Verse 10, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Verse 11, the key verse, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then again, he points to creation, not the fall, as the reason for this. In verse 13, he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So let's go back to verse 12 there. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a, a man. Friends, that is the principal place in the Bible where we get this view that men should be pastors, elders. Let me back up and say that there are four words in the New Testament okay, that go together. They are synonymous. All right. I realize this is a little bit more technical than we usually get on Sunday mornings, but you're big boys and girls. I know you can handle it. Come on, shake it off. Let's go. There are four words in the New Testament that are synonymous, and those four words are elder, overseer, bishop, and pastor. In fact, the word pastor is really only used one time in Ephesians chapter 4, and it's kind of the word that we use most in our culture. But those four words, elder, and that doesn't mean he's chronologically aged. It's an office of leadership in the church. It's elder, bishop, overseer, and pastor. Those four words are used interchangeably in the New Testament. And those, that office of elder or pastor, which are the two words that we use most commonly, that the primary responsibility for that office in the church which is what I am which is what Reynolds is which is what Don is that primary responsibility for that office in the church is to teach preach and oversee or lead the church and those are the two things that Paul says there that a woman should not do in the church in that particular context verse let's go look at verse 12 again I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. So he's not saying there in context that a woman can't teach at all, or that she can't bring some bit of wisdom for the church. But the sort of, and and if we had time, we would look at that word a little bit more deeply and unpack it a little bit for you. I don't have time to do that, so just trust me. And if you want more dialogue about this, we can talk more later. But that word teach there is speaking to the sort of authoritative Doctrine setting, preaching from the scriptures, that is the responsibility of the male elders. And then he goes on in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the next chapter over, and then Titus chapter 1, to outline the qualifications for these male elders who are saddled primarily with a responsibility to teach and preach the scriptures and to lead the church. And so in this context, he's saying that women should not fulfill that role in the church. They should not teach in this authoritative way and they should not exercise authority over a man. And so that is the primary source for our theological conviction that men, that the office of eldership is is reserved for men. Now, friends, this is fraught with misunderstanding. It's fraught with misapplication. Does this mean that women cannot be Vocationally employed and on staff at a church? No. Women can certainly be employed by the church in full time ministry and they can oversee women's ministry or children's ministry. But women should not be the elders, pastors of a church. And women should not preach to the church gathered with the sort of authority that comes from the office of an elder. That's clear from scriptures. I realize some of us come from varying backgrounds. If you want to dialogue more fully about this, I am more than willing. Ladies, this is not a me, Tarzan, you, Jane situation where this is just truth and, you know, deal with it. I realize how broken we are as a culture. I also realize that many of you come from churches who, frankly, I think get this very, very wrong. And I am sympathetic to the challenges of our culture and our background. And uh, I will work through this issue with you if you need more explanation. But here at Crosspoint, and I think obviously in the Corinthian church and in other biblically fa- faithful churches, I think only men should be elders pastors. All right, two points now before we go on to point number three, just two two little things. Well, friends, I- I've bored some of you half to death right now. And you're like, man, I thought we were just going to talk about, you know, how great it is to be a mom today or something like that, which is certainly a worthy thing to do. Well, first of all, we have a we have a value here of expositional preaching. Uh, we just work through the scriptures. And so this is where we are. We're, we're, not, we're not governed by Hallmark. We're not governed by that calendar. All right? So when we get to Father's Day, we're going to preach on whatever, whatever happens that day. That's why we don't do Fourth of July musicals and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, we love our country. We're patriotic. We love our moms. But we love the Bible. Okay? And so... We believe this because this is what the Bible teaches. Not because, like I said a moment ago, we're good southern folks. Right? That's not why we believe this. We believe this because God has given it to us clearly in Scripture. This is not a cultural preference. This is biblical truth. And if it's biblical truth, then, friends, it is good for us. It is good for us even if it hurts, man. Broccoli tastes terrible, but I guarantee you it's good for you. And sometimes biblical truth is hard to chew on. But it's good for you. It's good for us. And so that brings us to, I think, maybe kind of the heart of what it looks like in most of our lives. Question number three. What does this complementary view of men and women look like in the home. Last week we said that men are saddled with the responsibility, the great responsibility to lead, serve, protect, and provide. I've thought long and hard this week to think about how I should give you a vision of this. I thought about listing out some things, and I didn't want you scurrying away with your pens to write things down. I just pray by God's grace that I might be able to create with some meager, insufficient words, just a sense of what it might look like, and then I would commend you to get those resources, those two books that I gave out earlier, specifically the first one, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, as a beautiful unpacking of what this should look like in our lives. The book is not written for pastors. It's written for everyday people and husbands and wives to work through these issues together, but let me start by reading some scripture from Ephesians chapter 5, I'm focusing specifically in this moment on biblical manhood and then after that biblical womanhood. Men should lead, serve, protect, and provide. Men, listen to the scripture. I read it last week. I'll read it again. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Men are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Just some thoughts. I, wrote down as a brainstorm for what that would look like in my life a man needs to be emotionally present you ever just had a conversation with your wife or children when you're not really there oh that happens way too frequently in my home my home a man when he loves his wife like christ loves the church takes responsibility for the welfare of his family physical, financial, and spiritual. Listen to me carefully here. I want to be gracious. But we have somehow adopted a culture in the Bible Belt where men very easily farm out the responsibility for the stewardship spiritually of their family to a woman's Bible study or to a youth group. Oh, she's going to a Bible study? Okay. Okay. And listen, I am all for women's Bible studies. I want more women's Bible studies. I love women's Bible studies. I've never been to one, but I think they're wonderful. (laughs) But men, listen to me carefully. Kay Arthur, as much as I love her, she is not your wife's pastor. Beth Moore, as much as I love her and think she has wonderful biblical truth, is not your wife's pastor. Brad Evangelista is not your primarily your wife's pastor. You are your wife's pastor. You are the priest of your home. So saturate her with good resources, like a K. Arthur Bible study, or a Beth Moore book, or a sermon from Brad Evangelista, <laughs> maybe, or Reynolds Counts, or Don McKelvey, or many other gifted people. Not saying we're gifted, but you get my point. But men, you are the pastor of your home. You. You are. You're the pastor of your children. If you ignore your child's spiritual development, ship them off to youth group occasionally, send them to Young Life Camp and encourage them to sign up for teen advisors and they get all the t-shirts but your heart's never been dialed in to whether or not the gospel is really taking root in their life then when they're 17 and they're angry and hanging out at the mall with their pants around their ankles just rebellious then you start blaming everybody else where were you pastor dad where were you You are your boy's pastor. You are your daughter's pastor. You are your wife's pastor, dad. And I realize we all fail in this every day, friends, every day. I fail in this every day. But the grace of God doesn't only forgive. It empowers men to be the Christ-like servant that he's called you to be. So link arms with an older man who seems to be doing this well and confess your sin to a brother, and reason to teach your kid more than how to throw a curveball, but how to look into the Word for the ways of Christ. Men, you are saddled with the responsibility to do this. And here's the great and glorious news. God works through confused, jacked up, broken men like me. I know He does, because He's doing it right now, and He can do it through you. He rejects passivity. He looks to serve and bless. He's faithful. His leadership is the platform from which his wife and children take confidence and flourish from. The buck stops with him. There's a bump in the night. He's the one that gets up with a bat or the Beretta. <laughs> He's the one who has the hard conversation. He takes the bullet. What does it look like for a woman? Let me read to you from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if Some do not obey the word, which I suspect may be the setting for many of you in this room, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Let me stop there. I told you I'd talk about braided hair and gold pearls. I don't think that this is an admonition by Peter and then earlier by Paul that you should not try and make yourself beautiful or that you should not wear decent clothes and uh, jewelry and braid your hair. Look again at verse 3. He says, Do not let your adorning be external. And then if we read this one way, we think he is is outlawing braided hair and jewelry, but then he also mentions clothes. So he's certainly not outlawing that you wear clothes, right? (laughs) He's saying, I think we could read this this way, Do not let your adorning be merely or primarily external through the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning primarily be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Just a couple thoughts about what this looks like in the life of a woman. A woman welcomes appropriate biblical male leadership. Ladies, let me just reason with you for a second. If a man is leading in a way where he is struggling to lead like Christ and laying down his life and serving and giving up his own preferences for you, I've never met a woman who doesn't rejoice in that and long for that. The problem is, and I understand this, women, is most women in our culture are reacting to the broken selfishness of male sin. I have a sort of a life philosophy. The problem is men and the solution is men. I think a vast majority of female brokenness and sin in this area is merely a reaction to the sin of a man. Even in the garden where it reads as if Eve took the first bite of the apple, I think hers was the second sin. The first sin was a lack of male leadership. If you go back and read Genesis 3... Eve is deceived by the servant. She takes a bite of the apple. But it's not like Adam was over in the corner of the garden slaying a buffalo and skinning a snake and building a house. He's right next to her with the TV remote <laughs> with his thumb in his ear. <laughs> Male sin and male passivity is a vast majority of the time the primary problem. And so I've never met a woman who doesn't long for that Christ-like Ephesians 5 type of leadership from a man. And when he gives it, it's so much easier. It paves the way for this joyful response. She appropriately compensates when her husband is lacking in these areas, and she longs for and encourages his spiritual growth, as Peter says, with a respectful, a sort of quiet spirit where she communicates to him that she longs for the day when he steps up and becomes the man that he's supposed to be. Her pursuit of beauty has an accent on the internal rather than the external. A couple of young teenagers from the church came right up to me after the message last week and they said, Brad, are you saying that women can't look nice? No, sister. No, no. I mean, look nice. But, but there's just this sort of sense where you know when your attractiveness is meant to sort of gain the alluring eye of another man. And so a single woman, dress up, man, if the bar needs painting, paint that baby. Dress up, look good. But that's why you need a community of Christ-like men around you. Hopefully your dad and your youth pastor and other appropriate biblical males in your life who can speak into your life with humility and saying, sister, you look beautiful. Or sister, you're going a little bit too far. That skirt is a little too high. Or that V is a little bit too low. Or that those jeans are a little bit too tight. So this is not to say that you should be some sort of you know, trapped away in the hills of Pennsylvania. No, women should look beautiful. There's much admonition of Scripture for women to look beautiful. Read Song of Solomon. Read Proverbs 31. There's nothing more beautiful than a woman who's pursuing beautiful biblical womanhood, even externally. But there's an appropriate context for that. And the primary pursuit of beautiful femininity should not be merely external. It should be internal. She encourages her husband and nurtures her children and or those that she's been given influence over towards Christ-likeness. She is by no means a doormat. She's a fierce, a fierce godly woman when she needs to be. And she's a gentle, nurturing soul when she needs to be. She joyfully receives and blossoms under the Christ-like authority of her husband. I end with this illustration, friends, just to kind of give you a word picture of how I think this should work out. Think of appropriate biblical Christ-like male leadership as a sort of greenhouse for the tree or the rosebush of biblical femininity. The man becomes a sort of covering, whereby he guards and keeps out the locusts and the insects and the weather and all the things that they want to beat against and destroy the beauty of that flower, which is biblical femininity. And the man acts as a sort of nurturing environment and good soil where the rose, the petal, the flower of beautiful femininity is not beat down or cut prematurely, but it is allowed to blossom into all that it was intended to be by God. Men, you are the covering. You're the vinyl that takes the weather and keeps out the locusts. And women, you are the fruitful vine that displays an aroma, a flower of the presence of Christ. And Friends, ultimately, that's what this is all about. Jesus. I hearkened back to Don's words last week. We need grace. What's your reaction to this? Are you bristling at this? I pray that the Holy Spirit would tune your heart to see that this is good, that this is right. I pray that you would have the wisdom to lay down your reaction to the brokenness of our culture and that you would more clearly and decisively react to the Word of God. Are you beat up right now? guilt and conviction flooding your soul? Friends, be encouraged. It flooded my soul this week. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you falling short, man? Be encouraged. Are you, are you, not, are you not where you should be, young lady? Oh, be encouraged. We sang a song just a while ago about how firm a foundation There's a devil that wants to take your soul. But Jesus has said, Never, never, never will I forsake that soul. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Friends, have you trusted in Christ? Do you realize none of this is possible? You don't grit your way into this. Your flesh will resist this. Your flesh will fail in this. Have you trusted in Jesus? Do you realize that's the scandalously good news of the gospel? That Jesus takes our failures, which all of us have shared in, whether it's in this area or some other area of life, and that failure brings the right and just punishment of God. And the whole message of Christianity is that Jesus takes that punishment. He absorbs it. He satisfies it. He extinguishes it. And he rises again in victory over that sin and failure and all of its consequences, and now commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their self-reliance, to turn from their failure, to turn from their sin, and to trust in Him. Have you done that today? Friends, that's our hope. That's our hope. That we can trust in the One who has done what we cannot do. Do that right now, friends. Trust in Jesus if you've never done that before you're failing in this area, Christian, trust in Jesus. He is good. He empowers. He does more than forgive. He gives us himself. Let's pray. The Lord, as we now spend a few moments just responding to these difficult truths, I do pray that your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of grace, would flood this room for the heart that is bristling Lord point them to you for the heart that is beat up Lord nurture them like only you can for the marriage that seems to be in the ditch Lord Jesus would you do what only you can do and would you reach your hand down through maybe the Friendship of a brother or sister in this room to help that couple get out of the ditch. And Lord, ultimately, would you let biblical manhood and womanhood and the pursuit of those beautiful things be a heartbeat of this tribe of people? Lord, as a result of the way men treat women here, As a result of the Jesus-like nobility that has captured the heart of every man in this room and the joyful, Christ-like reception of that leadership that has gripped the heart of every woman in this room. Lord, would it be a sort of collective aroma that the onlooking world that is so messed up in this area sees and smells and senses and is drawn to ultimately so that people in our city would come to know Christ through the way we do manhood and womanhood and marriage and family and being a little boy and being a little girl through the way we live that out. God, would you bring much glory to your name, souls to yourself, and joy to your people. And I pray it in the good name of Christ, our great God and King. Amen.